Hello, and a warm welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast, where we have been discussing Shakespeare's Hamlet for some time now. Some time now because as Shakespeare's longest play and a very complex text, it bears quite a bit of discussing, and yet all of it fascinating. We may be at a loss, at least so far, to see how all these parts assemble together into a coherent whole. If they do, we always have T.S. Eliot's allegation that the play is in fact a brilliant failure, an incoherent mess that does not fit together in the end. But we are gathering evidence and seeing what we can, and establishing at least many patterns of significance and imagery. We at least have made way to the end of Act Two, verging upon the hinge act, as I always call it, Act Three, in a five-act Shakespearean-type structure. The third act typically is the act of the turning point, And in Hamlet, that is indeed marked very prominently by the play within a play at the end of Act Three. The play is put on by traveling players who at the end of Act Two, where we left off last time, have just arrived in Elsinore. They are touring. They are away from their normal home and touring rather by necessity. We have a passage, lines 337 through 62 in the David Bevington text that I teach from, that is not in the early quarto editions of Hamlet. It appears in the folio edition and is clearly an add-on about what accounts for some of this material, and that is a reference to the so-called War of the Theaters that was actually going on in the period in which Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, 1599 through 1602. The war of the regular commercial companies competing against the so-called children's companies because the actors, weirdly enough, were all children, even though the types of play that the children's companies typically performed were very sophisticated, satirical adult plays. Strange phenomenon, but true. These were almost the popular theater turned inside out. That is, they were private theaters, they were indoor instead of outdoor theaters like the Globe Theater, and they catered to a more sophisticated type of audience. Ben Johnson had quite a career with them. And they were driving the regular company to try to compete in some extra ways, including by touring the provinces. Here, the players have arrived. They're a touring company. We have touring companies in our own theatrical tradition, something that's a hit on Broadway goes and arrives in the major cities, at least, around the country. And that's what's going on here. The actors have arrived, and there there is a networking connection 
Hamlet knows at least the leader of these players, the so-called first player. And at the end of Act Two, he makes of this friend and acquaintance of his a special request. Please recite for me, just for me, a sort of house concert special performance, a certain thing that is billed as dramatic and is performed dramatically, and yet it is a recitation out of something that is essentially non-dramatic. And if we're in the know, and I have mentioned some of this previously, but if we are in the know, we know that this is actually a passage from Virgil's Aeneid, from the recitation in Book Two by Aeneas himself of the fall of Troy. And specifically, it is the passage in which the son of the dead Achilles, Pyrrhus, bursts into the Trojan throne room and kills ancient King Priam in front of his aged wife, Hecuba. It is done in a corny, bombastic, overly rhetorical style that would have come off as archaic even to Shakespeare's audience, let alone to us. In Kenneth Branagh's full-length version of Camelot, this is actually performed. I suspect it's probably cut in many productions of Hamlet. Hamlet's long enough as it is without adding things that a modern audience would be scratching its head about, but acted with wonderful spirit by Charlton Heston, a perfect choice, because here was a man who was quite old at the time, but still with it, and was trained back in another era of bombastic acting, the old Cecil DeMille, super Hollywood epic phase of acting. And Heston does a wonderfully over-the-top recitation of this. He knows exactly the kind of corny, melodramatic overacting that's called for, and he puts everything into it. It's a, it's a wonderful moment in the film. But why is it here? It is here for a number of reasons. One of them, the stylistic reason, is that we have this constant emphasis in this part of the play on not just acting. That runs throughout the play. Everybody is acting a part, as we have seen. We have professional actors here, but we have everyone acting a part, starting with Hamlet, and including just about everyone, as I said last time, except possibly Horatio. Professional actors, personal actors, everybody acting a part. The word hypocrite in English actually goes back to a root meaning of an actor on the Greek stage. And everyone here is a hypocrite. Hamlet is willing to blame everyone for their hypocrisy without it seeming to strike him of the irony that he too is playing a part, if not multiple parts. He claims he's not, or he claims that he's justified. At least he claims that it's not a type of madness. This is the part of the play 
in which, in line 378, Hamlet claims to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. That's become a famous line out of the play, despite the fact that you need about three footnotes to explicate it. I am mad only north-northwest, giving Alfred Hitchcock the title for one of his films, North by Northwest. I'm only mad when the wind is in a certain quarter. When the wind is southerly, I know one thing from another. I know a hawk from a handsaw or a hansel, which is a hawking term. Maybe. But at any rate, what he's claiming is I'm only acting mad, more acting. Polonius makes a remark that is typical, speaking of bombastic, Polonius never stops being bombastic, and gives the usual long-winded and utterly absurd kind of speech that we expect of him, except that we have to stop and pause for a moment and say, is there something more here? Hamlet makes one of his sharp remarks, then came each actor on his ass. Same kind of joke we would make out of that. Polonius responds, the best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral comical, historical pastoral, tragical historical, tragical comical historical pastoral, scene individable, or poem unlimited. Seneca cannot be too heavy, nor Plautus too light. The sound of a man with words running away with him. Polonius, the minute he opens his mouth, is like a truck running downhill without brakes. He simply cannot stop once he gets going and he keeps piling on those adjectives. But we note, and especially if you can look at it and see the hyphens, that what he is doing is joining all the known genres of drama of Shakespeare's time as if they were all hyphenated into one gigantic supergenre. We may want to think about that, at least eventually in relationship to Hamlet, which overflows the normal boundaries of the category of tragedy. I've already remarked upon how much comedy there is in Hamlet, so the scandal of a neoclassical critic that believed in the unities. It seems as if Shakespeare is signaling that he is reaching for something that is a kind of supergenre overflowing the normal boundaries that divide the genres, which are perhaps artificial. We will see out of the mouths of babes, but also out of the mouths of senile old men may come, who knows, a kind of unconscious wisdom. But at any rate, this bombastic speech is the death at the hands of the son of Achilles of ancient King Priam. The son of Achilles, Achilles is dead at this point, but his son has taken his place and kills the ancient king of Troy. It's no contest. Priam is something like 80 years old. He's a feeble 
old man. It is not the triumph that Pyrrhus himself seems to think it is. What glory is there, as Primus the first to throw in his face? What glory do you get, you young buck, killing an 80-year-old helpless man and one clinging to the altar at the same time so you add blasphemy onto your impiety? Pyrrhus just laughs at him and kills him. Pyrrhus, in the Aeneid, is a kind of killing machine. He, he just lives. He's a kind of terminator who lives to kill. What he lacks, he's very proud to be the son of his father, and he thinks that he has done something his father would be very proud of. But in fact, as Priam himself says, your father was a greater man than you. He showed compassion upon me in my grief, and that is quite true, tellingly true. Pyrrhus, therefore, is someone who is all action and no thought, no rationality. He just lives to fight, and therefore he's comparable to Hamlet's counterparts within the play. Fortinbras on the outside, a man who does indeed live to fight, and as we will see later, Laertes within the castle. Hamlet sits here procrastinating. And in fact, after this action, which the player gets so into that he actually gets tears in his eyes, he is so sympathetic to the plight of poor Hecuba, seeing her husband killed in front of her eyes, that he weeps for her while he's reciting. And that prompts the speech of Hamlet, the soliloquy at the end of Act Two, taking us into Act Three, where we have an actual drama about exactly that. Yet more famous Hamlet lines, what's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? He's weeping for fictional character. And Hamlet is right to note the fact that sometimes all of us, not just the first player, but all of us feel more involved, perhaps, in the fate of some fictional characters that move us than we are by actual life itself. And goes on to say, I have real motive for weeping, but then goes on to accuse himself rather justifiably, well, you have all this motive, and yet here you still sit. I have done nothing. Why have I done nothing? And even he is beginning to question his own procrastination. Am I a coward, he asks in the soliloquy. And he goes on and on and on. There are times when Cam Hamlet can be a better poet, but just as bombastic as Polonius, and I think that's part of the reason Polonius is in the play, to be a kind of foil for him. Polonius is a windbag, but Hamlet is full of words that are magnificent words, but still, they are words in place of action. But he's thinking, 
This is giving him his plan. And he says at the end of Act Two, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Ah, but I have a plan. He has gotten the players to agree that he is going to take a play called The Murder of Gonzago and rewrite it into the Mousetrap play because it's going to catch not so much a mouse as a rat. He is going to rewrite this play in order to make it resemble the actual circumstances of the assassination of his father by Claudius and see if Claudius reacts to a play that clearly reflects his guilt. On to Act Three, The Hinge Act. And it opens in the throne room again. Every so often the rhythm of this part of the play is that every so often we all gather back together again and compare notes. We've all been spying on Hamlet. What do we get out of this? And the king, queen, and Polonius are asking Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, what did you find out? Basically, uh, we have no clue. <laughs> he does confess he feels distracted, but from what cause it will by no means speak. Okay, try again. This time we will set his own girlfriend upon him to spy on him. And that is exactly what happens. We set Ophelia with a prop. She is holding a religious book or prayer book. Uh, stage direction, Ophelia pretends to read a book. And we find out later that it is a religious text hence Hamlet referring to nymph in thy orisons, in thy prayers, be all my sins remembered. But it's a ruse. Hamlet, before this occurs, launches into the most famous soliloquy of all soliloquies in drama, the famous to be or not to be speech. Like everything else in Hamlet, it is surrounded by a bit of ambiguity, stage ambiguity, how to stage this or how Shakespeare thought or intended that it be staged because soliloquies, the convention is, the character is alone. The character is really, of course, addressing the audience, but the convention is the character is alone, speaking his inmost thoughts. But it is quite possible and Breno's film does play it exactly this way. The king and Polonius withdraw is another stage direction right before the soliloquy. Well, how far do they withdraw? And they may very well be lurking just out of Hamlet's sight, overhearing this. Possible, it can be played that way, but not necessarily so. If that is the case, then it's not really a soliloquy. But at any rate, we get the famous to be or not to be soliloquy, in which people always repeat that line. It's a question whether everyone knows exactly what that soliloquy is about when they repeat the line, 
but it's about the possibility of suicide. Hamlet is not acting, is procrastinating, and is actually at this point reached kind of an edge or boundary line where he actually wonders, can this go on? Let me read to you the entire soliloquy, one of the most famous passages in world drama. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or <clears throat> to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprized love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bourne no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience does make us cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Soft you now, the fairer field. To be or not to be. And the gist of the speech in plain English is not to be is the obvious vote, not just of me, but of everyone, the only logical vote, except for the fear that death is not the end, that it is not peace and oblivion, longed for, a consummation devoutly to be wished. What if there's something after death? And uh, yeah, by the way, I just got done talking with a ghost. Whether it was my father or not, it was something from another world. So we have a pretty good reason to be a little worried about that fact. 
But if that were not true, life is so meaningless and burdensome that the only logical recourse would be to end it and get a little rest. This nihilistic, or at least playing with the possibility of a nihilistic view of life, looking into the abyss, this is the kind of contemplative, dark, inwardly turned consciousness that fascinated the Romantics and well beyond the Romantics through the 19th century. The whole, not so much school or movement as tradition of writers involved with examining an inwardly turned alienated consciousness. People like Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche all the way up to the existentialists of our own time. And in fact, Camus, the French existentialist, first book, The Myth of Sisyphus, is an exact counterpart of this speech. Sisyphus in Greek myth was condemned in the underworld to roll a huge boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down again, and he had to start all over endlessly. Camus seizes upon that as a metaphor for the meaninglessness of human existence, the absurdity, as existentialism puts it, of human existence, and says that the first question of philosophy is exactly Hamlet's question. Why not suicide? Why is that not the logical move? And it also, in Hamlet's version of it, seems to be used at this moment as an excuse for not acting. That enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard lose the name of action. It paralyzes this type of consciousness of some sort of consequences paralyzes action. But enter Ophelia reading her religious book and approaches Hamlet and does what she has been instructed to do, which is to break up with her boyfriend and give back everything that he has given to her. Letters bad love poems, as we have seen, and it says she offers tokens, all the gifts that Hamlet has given her during their time together. And the way Hamlet treats her, we have to ask ourselves, I just had sort of ornery fun asking the women in my class because I'm presently teaching Hamlet in an introduction to literature class. Okay, this is a breakup scene. What if your boyfriend in your breakup treated you like this? She gives tokens, she gives the gifts back. Hamlet's first question to her is, huh, are you honest? Double-barreled, honest, Meaning, are you being open about this? 
are you being candid here, or is this some sort of act? But also honest in the secondary Elizabethan sense of are you chaste? And I have to try to emphasize the, because of the old language, the brutality of the speech. Are you a slut? Is basically what he's saying, right? Throwing it in her face. And keeps going on about honesty. Honesty in Ophelia, honesty in all women. And he toys with her. The question is, is this justified? All right, this is a breakup. He's a bitter boyfriend in a breakup, saying things that are, well, literally and figuratively below the belt, and deliberately being mean, as we do when we are hurt and angry. But is it defensible? Is it excusable in that way? Or is this just beyond the pale? I did love you once. And Ophelia replies, indeed, my lord, you made me believe so. You should not have believed me. I loved you not. Just nasty. And Ophelia replies, I was the more deceived. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? And he keeps repeating, get thee to a nunnery. Everybody should get, all women should get to a nunnery. You should stay into a nunnery because that's the only way in which you're going to remain chaste. And we could give him credit for an attempt at fairness here. It's not entirely women's fault. Men are not worth anything either. I am not worth anything either. It, I could accuse me of such things. It were better my mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my beck than I have thoughts to put them in, imagination to give them shape, or time to act them in. What should such fellows as I do, crawling between earth and heaven? We are errant knaves all, believe none of us, get go thy ways to a nunnery. Where's your father? This barrage about all men don't believe any man. Echoing pretty much the advice her father has already given her. And by the way, where's your father? He knows where. Eavesdropping. He knows that. At home, my lord, is not true, as we have seen. Hiding, along with Claudius, overhearing all of this is the truth. And then he launches into women. Men are not worth anything, neither are women. You jig, you amble, you lisp, you nickname God's creatures and make your wantonness your ignorance. Go to, I have no more on it. It made me mad. I say we will have no more marriage. The intense disgust, and it is yet again a sexual disgust in Hamlet. Is it justified by circumstances? Okay, he's off to a bad start, you might say, in his mother's behavior. He now has had it confirmed that his mother is married to a murderer immediately after the death 
of his father. And he is assuming that this was with Gertrude's full knowledge and consent, though, as we will see, there's a genuine question how much Gertrude knew, how much Gertrude was going along with it. But he assumes, and we can understand it, that Gertrude was a full partner in this treachery, which was indeed a sexual treachery, as well as a lust for power. And that has poisoned him about all women. Is it excessive, though? All right. One woman, okay, it's really bad if your mom has behaved badly and if your mom especially has behaved badly in a sexual way with your own uncle. Yeah, that's nauseating. But okay, there's a power of reason and a power of moderation here. Do you immediately leap and have it poison your feelings about your girlfriend, your feelings about all women, and in fact, all men too. Is it disease, the constant metaphor of disease, the garden gone to seed that runs all the way through the play? How much of this is true about Elsinore, which is indeed a corrupt and decadent place, and how much of it is the cast of Hamlet's own mind? All of the above, perhaps. But at any rate, Hamlet is in a furious and disgusted state of mind about Ophelia. Does she deserve it? Ophelia is the good girl, the innocent girl, the girl that is trying her best to obey orders from the men in her life, which is what a good girl is supposed to be under patriarchy. And we could see her with complete sympathy as an innocent, perhaps a bit weak, but innocent girl trapped in the games of rival males. And I am not saying that that is a wrong way to think about Ophelia, someone for whom the pressure becomes so intolerable that she cracks and goes mad. But as we end the discussion, and we'll take up from here again, injustice, we have to look at the other side of the picture with Ophelia. Are you honest? Hamlet asks. And yes, he's got this sexual innuendo in there. But he's asking, actually, the simple question, are you being honest right now? And no, she is not. She is lying. She is playing a part. She is spying on her own boyfriend for, first, her dad, but her dad is doing it for Claudius. So Hamlet's two enemies have the allegiance of Ophelia. She is obeying them. She is choosing them rather than him. So we have to see that vicious as he may sound at the moment and misogynistic to say the least, she is not being honest, and she is choosing the other men who are not good men, or at least the one of them is not, over him. There is a rivalry there over the woman. And that reflects back to the Freudian possibility 
with Gertrude that Hamlet is outraged that his mother would pick Claudius rather than him, his rival. He projects it all as outrage about his idealized father, but in reality, is it? And I leave it as a genuine question. Is it you chose Claudius over me? And that's the Freudian interpretation. It may have something to it because of the possibility of an Oedipal undertone to this play, the sense of you know, the relentless insistence upon the incestuous, the marriage of Claudius and Gertrude was regarded as quasi-incestuous in that day, but it leads the to the possibility of further incestuous undertones in the play. And yet, after all that is over, enter Claudius and Polonius again, and Act 3, Scene 1 ends with Claudius saying, no, despite all that seeming obsession, love his affections do not that way tend. Claudius is a shrewd man, even if he's evil. There's something in his soul or which his, melan or which his melancholy sits on brood, something else. And we have to find out what it is. And we will go on with Claudius to find out the next time. Mm -hmm.